ultimately what we're all doing collectively is trying to give as many people as we can in a democratized way, uh, in an accessible way, in a way that's, that's, that's non-imposing, that's friendly, that's not talking down, but that's talking with, that respects how hard it is to teach and how hard it is to learn, uh, to give folks the power to drive their professional lives so that they can achieve their personal goals. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Dan Broadnitz didn't set out to join a revolution in online education. He saw himself changing hearts and minds through his novels and poetry. Fate, however, had a different plan for Dan's talents, but one no less transformative. It placed him at the helm of global content strategy at LinkedIn Learning at a time when the entire world migrated into a digital classroom. Never has his expertise in creating meaningful virtual learning experiences been more valuable than it is right now. Dan found his way into this fertile field through his own natural inclination to understand how things work and, crucially, how to make them work better. He applied his iterative mindset far and wide, from his desire to improve his own creative practice as a writer, as well as to the learning process itself. He began his career in publishing before joining the pioneering online learning site lynda.com, which was founded by former Art Center faculty member Linda Weinman and alum and now trustee Bruce Haven. It was there that Dan honed his skills in this emerging arena and found his passion for democratizing education by making it accessible to anyone with an internet connection. His role today at LinkedIn has scaled considerably to keep pace with the growing market for knowledge in today's information economy, and his enthusiasm for the work is contagious. He sees LinkedIn's 16,000-plus course library as a resource for nothing short of personal transformation. And his work, as he eloquently puts it, is to orchestrate the beautiful, thoughtful whole. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Brodnitz. Hi, Dan. Welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought it would be good to enter this conversation a couple of different ways, but through the lens of creativity itself. And you know, struck by the fact that you have a blog on creativity, which features a variety of different artists from different fields. And I'm curious what you've learned from that experience and what's striking about creativity patterns, themes, issues that have come up through that particular project. Uh, that that was, uh, that's one of the, my favorite projects I've, I've had a chance to work on. And the genesis of that was, I myself was struggling with figuring out ways to unlock my own creativity. And I started wondering uh, what did, practicing artists do, and also this kind of fundamental debate between how much is it waiting for the muse to strike and how much is it actions that could summon uh, the muse. And so the, the the thesis I went in with was I would talk to artists from a variety of backgrounds uh, and ask that question, which is essentially, do you have tricks? Uh, and and the answer almost invariably was uh, yes, actually. Uh, that there certainly, these are folks who had found a way to, to light a fire 
and sustain a fire. And that came through them and it you know, ex expressed what was on their mind. But it wasn't just um, a matter of sitting around and waiting for it to happen. They, they had patterns and habits uh, to, to summon it. Can you give us some examples of what those are and, and some of the things you remember about what they told you? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the number one uh, theme was, uh, can I say ass? I'll say ass. Ass and chair. <laughs> ass and chair. Uh -huh. Ass and chair was the number one theme that, that I heard from folks. It was a lot of tricks that they'd come up with to, um, to, to do programmatic writing and, or programmatic music or programmatic art. And then I started seeking out people at the time, and this was in around 2007 or so. There was a movement happening there where you found people who were doing the picture of the day, or there's a great musician named Jonathan Colton who was doing Song of the Week, for example. Uh, and so I was seeking out uh, even cartoonists who had to do large quantities of, uh, of cartoon work for their career. Uh, and so they, they, you know, people would use timing techniques. Uh, people would use bribery. Uh, the, I think the biggest thing that people figured out was that forced work tended to be as valid as inspired work. Um, so there was mm. one person in particular who told a really powerful story of a very a hard time in their life, and they needed to do the work every day anyway. Uh, and uh, and you know th this person was um, left by their spouse and kind of picking up the pieces from that. And when they looked back on that time, they realized that the work that they'd done during that challenging couple of years where they felt like they were kind of going through the motions actually had as much resonance and as much validity to them as what they'd done in lighter times when they'd kind of easily found themselves at the table. You know, if I could share one, the best image I got from that was from a musician I love uh, named uh, Adrian Ballou, who played with uh, Zappa and Bowie and has some wonderful stuff of his own, uh, like uh, Lone Rhino and such. And he talked about that image of fire and that idea of being committed to, once you get the fire started, to feeding it every day because the fire goes out. And I, I found that myself, that when there are times, you know, it's, it's sort of the idea of being creative is rewarded by more creativity. So I've had periods in my life where I've kind of tapped into what feels like some kind of a whoosh and I've, I've been able to keep bringing stuff forward. And then if I let that pattern go, you know, the fire will die out and you have to kind of do that work again. So there's a real momentum to it, to kind of opening right. up that part of yourself that he was speaking to that, that really resonated with me. It's interesting, it parallels actually some of the work that I've done about creativity as well. But there's another kind of interesting extension of it, and that is how the creative process continues when you actually leave the desk or the studio. And the single most articulated statement to me in my work on this was, I thought of the idea in the shower. The, yeah, the other classic example that a lot of us have encountered is you go to the coffee shop to, to work on a problem. And then uh, when you drive home is when you actually figure the problem out. And I think part of it is like learning sometimes to leave something not solved. Uh, exactly right. We, exactly one, right. Yeah, yeah. One thing we probably both encountered is this idea of um, visual stimulation. So there's something about going for a walk, uh, often going for a walk without music, which is unusual to do nowadays, or going for a drive on the way home from the coffee shop back when that was a thing that we did. And that visual stimulation can kind of trigger whatever process you've been working on. Right. And it, it's fascinating to me how, you know, leaving the more regular or traditional context of your own work and finding yourself in a different context we think of as a break from the work, but in fact, it's an interesting continuation of the work itself too. Uh, if, if I could share one other personal yeah. thing that I had to figure out. Please. I like to write. And when I was uh, growing up, I had this idea that I was going to be a novelist and I had a pretty specific picture of what that was. And I'm not a good uh, novelist, it turns out, uh, at all. 
And at some point, I, through a, a, a series of like minor epiphanies, I realized there's many ways to be creative. You know, so for myself, it turned out I do a little bit better in script and I do a little bit better with essays or with poetry, but my brain is just not wired to create, uh, you know, vast plots with sweeping characters over time and such and to kind of move the story forward that way. And I think that applies to a lot of us that we just have to figure out, it's not a binary, are you an artist or are you creative or not? There is something to figuring out what modes, what genres, you know, what uh, modalities work for the way your brain is put together. It's a great uh, segue to a question I have for you, and that is, I'd love to know more about you as a poet. You published uh, at least one volume of one book, The Lavender Lemonade is Back, Poems and Stories. That's the title, correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay, good. And I'm I'm fascinated with that part of your life uh, as a poet and would love to invite you to talk a little bit more about who Dan is as a poet and how that does work, how that creative expression does come through. Sure. You know, uh, I'm very much a beginner in all these things that I do. I have a guitar over there. I consider myself a, a hack guitarist. Uh, as you can see, uh, since we're on video here, that I have these fancy headphones because I, I consider myself a hack home musician. I'm, I'm a poet for joy, uh, and I've written for years. And it, it's it's just about trying to play with words and get a little bit better. Um, sometimes I'll think about writers that I knew at certain ages. Like I have a favorite writer named um, Richard Brodigan, and he has a collection of um, poems from when he was 17 that, in my opinion, aren't great. And by the time he was 24, he was amazing, actually. You know, so there's like so, in my opinion, for, for my taste. So this idea that we're all just kind of trying to work at it and refine it and be on this journey. Um, so my, my creative ambition is mostly just to chip away at it a little bit more. And at some point, I figured out that life is more fun when you're doing stuff like that, when you have a project. Uh, sometimes it's essays. Sometimes it's been scripts. Yeah, so I, I, I'm definitely in that space where there's hopefully uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of humans who are creating things, and I'm just one of those folks. Mm -hmm. uh, this particular book was the idea of like taking work that I'd done over some time and bringing it together into one whole, honestly, that I could share with my kids and just kind of capture that moment and have it all in one place. Um, and the, I'll tell you the poem itself, which is about the return of my favorite lemonade uh, at a place called uh, Julie's, uh, which is a, a local uh, coffee and tea shop. But what, what it's really writing about is um, actually about creativity. It's about this idea of uh, this great thing coming back and the time when it's away. And I think that there's a lot of that that we wrestle with, which is there are times when you feel like you've done the right things and found the right habits to summon it. And then you still lose touch with it a little bit. And you try and kind of repeat what worked and figure out a new formula. Is there a story behind the connection itself? How you made that connection to the experience of the lavender lemonade and your own poetic or creative I, I think it's mainly just that it was at that time. There, there was a, I mean, I will say there, there was a time professionally when I took off six months. I'm, I just gave myself a sabbatical. And that's when I did those interviews that we talked about, the creativity interviews. And, and that's when I tried to really, really devote myself to daily writing. And, and that was rewarded with some of the stuff that I like better than, of the things I've written, some of my favorite things, let's say. Um, so that's probably the number one thing that I believe in is that uh, habit uh, summons it back. And at that time, you know, that, that, that notion of the, it was just the lemonade reappeared in my life. The, the idea with the lemonade is that uh, it's in season and it's out of season. And so I'd spent months dreaming of when the lavender lemonade would return. Uh, and then kind of the, you know, the, the sun moves around the earth as it does and the lemons are in season and the lavender lemonade shows up in chalk on the menu. So I think it just was kind of crystallizing that idea of the return of something that you miss and that you're dreaming of. Are you writing poetry every day now? Um, you know, I'm, more than anything, I'm, I'm uh, writing essays uh, right now. Mm. I'm a big notebook person. And so I'm filling my notebooks, digital and otherwise, with, uh, you know, uh, 
yeah, pieces. And actually, I'm thinking about taking those collections of um, creativity interviews and, and publishing them. Uh, my wife and I formed this small uh, publishing company so that we could take some of the experience we had in the publishing industry and use it to bring forward works from ourselves and other like, friends and folks that we're fans of. I think that's a fabulous idea. I think it's great. I mean, to me, conversations about how we are creative and the many ways in which we are creative and how much that is no longer just a part of an elect group of genius artists, but is really part of all of our lives. I think the more we can talk about that, um, the better off we're going to be uh, as human beings. Yeah, I think that's spot on. You know, I think the thing I wrestled with was as a as a kid, uh, again, I wanted to be a novelist. That was my, my self-image. And, and I wanted to be a professional writer, and that was my clear path. And for various reasons, that's not what I had and not what I did. And then there was a, a period where, as a result, I didn't do that much creative. And it was it was actually getting the lavender lemonade back. It was getting back to that moment um, that maybe, I think you're exactly right. I think creativity is for everybody. And I think when I say that I'm one of this vast community of folks who are trying to make stuff, I don't mean that to be humble. I'm, I'm proud of that. And I think life is better with creativity and being honest about the fact that there are techniques that can bring it out. And, and that there's a space for people who are just making creativity part of their life is a, is a great thing. Well, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, here you are, this writer and this poet and this lover of music and lover of headphones. And let's talk about the interplay of all of that with your job as the uh, global head of content strategy. Yeah, well, this is, uh, this is the best job that I've had, uh, to be honest. And it's been a wonderful journey uh, thus far. I started out in publishing uh, for many years, and I started out as a desktop publisher, actually, and then kind of moved my way through the process. And And the thing that I found along the way is that every aspect of content was fun uh, and was joyous, whether it was being a proofreader or being a copy editor or being what we called a developmental editor back then. Um, so, so that's what my life has been filled with professionally, and I've been surprised how much just happiness uh, I've, I've experienced from it. And how do you link it to your work as an educator? Well, you know, it's funny. When I was in book publishing, I didn't think of myself as much as, a, as an educator. Um, in book publishing, every book kind of stands alone to some degree, right? Every book is its own business in a way, and you're putting it on the shelf. And it will, there's certainly a series of books. And we were educating folks, but we were creating a bunch of individual titles. Um, about 11 years ago, I joined this company called lynda.com uh, in California. I think we at Art Center know a little bit about exactly. it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. right. Uh, which eventually was acquired by LinkedIn, so that's where I am today. And everything changed for me because uh, the folks at Linda, uh, and specifically we'll say Bruce Haven and Linda Wyman, the founders, had come up with this different model, which was a library, and which was an, an offering of courses. And it was a curriculum, and it was a way to put put the learning together so it wasn't just about every individual course. It really was about, you know, today we have, um, in multiple languages, we have 16,000 plus courses, we have 2,300 instructors, and they're all orchestrated into this beautiful, thoughtful whole. And that's the part, That's I think that's the moment when I started thinking of myself as maybe not being an educator per se, but certainly being part of building a true educational experience. Um, very different than here's an educational book. When you start putting together an offering, you're really creating hopefully for somebody uh, the ability to really transform themselves and take the whole journey in this kind of uh, uh, learning space that, that you're part of building. You know, I, I mean, as you're speaking, it's fascinating to me and uh, forgive the dated metaphor, maybe some of our listeners won't know what I'm talking about, but is it a kind of a card catalog uh, journey through learning in a way? I mean, so that you, through the library and through the offerings, you can kind of curate your way through or discover things that you would never actually think that you needed to learn, but 
because you're flipping through those card catalogs, God, I'm showing my age here, you find things just by chance that turn out to be vital to your learning, vital to your education, vital to your own personal journey. Yeah, I think there's a couple of really powerful things in there. And I, unfortunately, I can also relate to the uh, to, to the imagery, I will confess. <laughs> My mom, by the way, was a, a librarian. So very, very much go. can relate to that. We had cards strewn sometimes. Um, w- one piece of it is, uh, you know, just to underscore the word you said, which was curated. That's such a big part of what we're doing is uh, the internet, you know, you could learn most anything you want out there in the wild for sure. Um, there is a difference though, to having a carefully curated collection of courses, uh, first and foremost in the time that it takes, like we're really trying to make it as, as efficient and satisfying and effective and impactful as possible for you to transform yourself, uh, professionally. And to your other point, I would say that was exactly like at the core of what Linda and Bruce started building, which was this idea that if we make this content available and if we remove as many friction points as we can, uh, for many people, we can unlock their kind of innate desire to improve themselves and 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 develop their skills and go on that journey. And someone can come into it in finance and come out of it on the other end as a programmer, for example, or they can come into it as a programmer and then develop themselves as a manager. Um, nowadays, that's certainly still a very big part of what we do, but we also are trying to give people paths. You know, we have learning paths for if you want to become a data science, for example. And when you're part of a corporation and where you're, you're experiencing our, our content because you work at this or that company or through this or that government agency, we also have all sorts of tools to make it possible for the uh, learning and development people there to, to curate specifically what their organization needs. So we kind of serve both modes now, the, the enthusiastic, self-motivated, you know, with friction reduced as possible, independent learner, and also kind of organizational learning when we want to guide people on a path. So this season of Change Lab really wants to explore a variety of different channels of educational offerings and maybe reflect back on our own work as a college and how we think about a kind of multi-channel delivery. And so I have a lot of questions for you about online education and just really wanting to explore some of it with you. And But maybe I should just begin by saying, why does online education excite you, as I assume it does? Yeah. And I think the other question is, why has it excited me for so many years? Right. Uh, so right. there is a massive democratizing element to what we're able to do. Um, I think, by the mm. way, when it comes to um, higher ed, for example, and uh, other other organizations out there that are educating, we often are great partners. I think that was a part of the original like, germ also of what Linda and Bruce were building was that we can partner with organizations like yours to, to help supplement. Um, my boss for many years was a classroom teacher before she became the head of all of content for Linda back in the days and then LinkedIn Learning. And she used to say, you know, there was a moment when she pivoted from wanting to teach that great classroom of kids, which is obviously at the core of this whole thing. And as someone who has two kids who are in college now and one just out of college, essential, that human-to-human interaction. But there's another thing you can do at scale, you know, when you can potentially reach millions of folks too. And I think there's a place for both. I think especially when it comes to questions of um, uh, access, uh, and and equity, uh, there's something really powerful nowadays that we can we can uniquely deliver on. If this this whole idea of making this vast offering available and accessible in a super affordable way, you know, is is really designed to give people the power to change their lives. I used to say to friends, 
you know, that if they found themselves in an economically tight spot, I would say, you know, you can subscribe for a month. Uh, the, the terms have changed at various points, but you can get a free trial, let's say, and in the, and use two weeks and teach yourself, you know, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and kind of change your skills. And that's always been really satisfying. Do you think people have to learn how to learn online? Or do you think that's, again, a generational thing? For me, it's a challenge in certain kinds of ways that an in-person learning situation is not, but that could be generational too. My kids don't have as tough a time with it, I don't think. Yeah, I, th I think people had to learn to trust it maybe at some point. Um, I think that people have to 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 find that spark for, for development in any situation, whether they're going to university or they're learning online. I think that challenge is there regardless. And that's sort of where we, we, we really try to, you know, prioritize our investments and our thoughtfulness is how, how can we how can we reduce those barriers to get more people in basically is our goal so that more folks can have a chance to access this opportunity yeah and I don't think um, I don't think it's generational of whether you can develop or really benefit from an online situation it just I'm curious about the extent to which you know online learning requires a particular kind of skill or a particular kind of openness or a particular kind of engagement let me get specific I think it's a lonely experience. And for some people, I think that that works well. But I've even noticed with the students at Art Center for some of our online work that we've had to mitigate against some of that loneliness and build community. And I've always believed that, and I'd love for your response on this um, because you have so much more experience in it. I've always believed that the loneliness is also part of the higher attrition numbers that also associated with online learning as well. Yeah, I, th I think you're definitely onto something. And I think that's part of what we hope that we can address at LinkedIn, uh, right? LinkedIn is the the world's largest um, professional social network, and so we we think one of the areas that we can contribute is in the social component of learning. I, I would say for for most people, I think there's a place for both. We often talk about right tool for the job, and there there is a part of study and learning that you do on your own, and you don't want to lose that entirely. I think I, I think you know the experience in a class, the experience doing your homework afterwards and thinking it through, uh, and the repetition sometimes for certain kinds of study, um, the practice. A lot of that stuff can be done and should be done, you know, it, when you're kind of in your own head uh, successfully. But I 100% agree with you that uh, there's a, a magical and powerful thing that happens when you can learn communally as well. And that balance of how to not, you know, how to let people still stay focused, but also deliver community right. is one of our top priorities. Right. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, LinkedIn has groups, for example, and we've been working on ways that we can integrate groups into uh, courses uh, we've added a, a Q&A feature into courses so people can ask questions and get answers. Um, we're adding something called Watch Party so you can know when other folks in your circle are are watching. Uh -huh. So I, I think you're 100% right. And I think, you know, the art of it for us is going to be, you know, meaningfully serving that need. Yeah. And it kind of leads to the question, really, and I would love to know from a, a more historical point of view, how the online learning environment has actually evolved and changed from, say, when you started at lynda.com to where we are today? Well, I, th I think the first thing is uh, people's expectations, assumptions, readiness open to it has changed dramatically, not just in the last year, but over the last several years. You know, I'll tell you a quick anecdote about Lynda itself is that um, Lynda was founded uh, not just before I was there, but also uh, before YouTube existed. Uh, and so it was really, uh, an, in my impression of it as someone who wasn't there is that it was a really uh, thoughtful early bet uh, before broadband uh, was even widely accessible, before the world was sort of ready for that kind of video. I always thought that was sort of mm -hmm. one piece of the genius mm -hmm. of the founding story. And I, I think certainly there are many more players now than there were back then. And that's great. And I, I like our industry and I, I like our competition, which makes us sharper. And then for us, what's changed is, you know, becoming part of LinkedIn uh, five years ago 
was obviously a major inflection point because it does move from that place where we have what we feel is you know exceptional content made by fabulous creators to marrying that to uh, the platform and what we call it LinkedIn, the economic graph, uh, which is insights into the world's jobs uh, and skills and uh, industries and such. And it's, it's the combination of those things. And then as you were saying, community, that I think is something new that we can hopefully bring into the world. So what's the pandemic taught us? What have we learned about education, learning, specifically online learning, opportunities that it's brought, challenges that it's brought? I mean, I've watched Art Center over the course of the last year change so radically in its relationship to what one can do online. It's fascinating. I think it, it's it's become a truism that we all experienced, you know, depending on who you talk to, two, four, five, ten years of digital transformation in a month or in a week, depending on on the organization. Right. For for us, we went from uh, a pipeline that was. Um, about 65% in our studios. We have these wonderful studios in California and Austria and Tokyo to 100% remote, uh, sort of on a Tuesday, you know? So, and that's just our experience. <laughs> uh, so many individuals and organizations have transformed themselves. I, I think this is at the moment, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but it's, it's the moment to start thinking, you know, what lessons uh, and what, what new skills for those of us who've you know weathered this storm, and it has been a storm, right? What can we take out of it that's positive? Indeed. Um, what can we build on here? There's still quite a journey ahead of us, but we're, I think we're at that point of reflection to start to think on not just responding to this moment, but you know what will the next couple of years look like, and what can we make out of it? And can I probe some of the early reflections that are going on in Dan's uh, brain here about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I will say personally, one thing I've been I've used as a, uh, a framing thing is this idea of like, when we look back on this moment, what will we see? So that I, I think yeah. many of us are, uh, this is just a very personal piece, but many of us are on a heightened journey of self-improvement. Something about this time, whatever your situation, that I just know so many people who are trying to uh, become better listeners or better partners or spouses, or you know, various things about the more creative, uh, various ways that they want to improve themselves. connect that directly to the pandemic? No, I do. I think that's about the so many changes of the last year. Um, I think it's probably for many of us also a side effect of uh, shelter in place and, and the implications of that. So so one frame for me was always as a as a manager and as a leader and hopefully as a friend and as a as a spouse and a father, you know, how, how will I look back on the other side of this and what will I see? So that that's what I aspire to, which doesn't mean I achieve it, but I do try and like think about what will, you know, my the judges, what will future Dan say? thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, and that's kind of been my guide along the way is, uh, you know, yays and boos, let's say, from, from future Dan. Are you taking very direct steps to address that um, yourself? Are you involved in certain kinds of practical things that are opening these yeah, questions up into possibility for yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, part of it is just in, in the organization, we're all trying to keep that in mind. So we're trying to continue to keep each other uh, whole and treat each other with kindness. One of our, like our first principle with, with my team is 
um, team and talent. And the first rule kind of under team talent is take care of yourselves, each other, and your loved ones. And we bring that up a fair bit um, to make sure that everything is, and we're not perfect on that score, I'm sure, but that we aspire to that. Uh, I'll say personally, I have a new habit for the last few months, which is some exercise in the morning. And also, and I'm this is really true, it's uh, watching the content in our own library. And I, I find, and maybe you've had the same experience, that um, enjoying the thing that you and your team are making is one of the sheerest paths to to happiness. I find like the more of our content mm. I, I watch, the happier I am. So every morning mm-hmm. now I get up, I try and do morning pages like a lot of folks do. Uh, I have some an exercise ritual and I watch some of our content, uh, which might sound hokey, but it actually does. Uh, not only do I learn from it, but it makes me feel just like what I'm doing has purpose. You've written a little bit about the popularity of some of the courses on LinkedIn right now. And I'm just wondering, I mean, some that I read seemed reasonable and appropriate for the moment. I wonder if there are surprises in there for you. There isn't so much surprises, but there are like reinforcements. You know, like we all saw in this last, I would say seven, eight months, heightened desire to be more thoughtful about issues around diversity, inclusion, and belonging or equity as well. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. so, you know, we have a, a fair number of courses on those and some fabulous, uh, really thoughtful instructors. I, I've been taking a number of those courses myself, as have virtually everybody on our team. And some of them have done ex- exceptionally uh, well just in terms of earning the attention of people. So, for example, there's a wonderful course on unconscious bias uh, that I would recommend that uh, I found really helpful, and I think a lot of folks have. So courses like that have been in the library for for a bit, but it's it has been instructive. This idea of you have courses, and then a moment comes when there's really the need is heightened. Um, another one would be just in the in the in the wellness space. That's an area that um, uh, Jolie Miller, who's the the head of that team, has been championing as well as actually the, the Dips program for quite some time. And you know, then the moment comes, and her program and her team are and her instructors are there ready to serve. And so we've seen a lot more engagement there. It's I wouldn't say it's surprising, but it just kind of is a reminder sometimes that we, we try to run um a data informed program, but not a data driven program. Because some so mm. and that's part of the joy of building an offering, right? Is that every title doesn't have to be judged purely on on numbers. We want the numbers to make us smarter so we can, you know, serve the needs of the real needs of people. But but those are good cases where we were publishing those titles and investing there. Uh, and then a super heightened need came through. And of course, it's true also for things like uh, courses on Teams or courses on Zoom or courses on uh, nowadays, there's a lot of need for courses on just how to do everything um, remote, whether it's uh, remote recruiting or managing or leading to change. All these things are, you know, fit in the now more than ever bucket. But so not, not I wouldn't say huge surprises, but it has been just a reminder to me that you kind of publish for the long term. You don't only publish for the the moment. It's not it's not a hit driven business as much as it's a it's intended to be a thoughtful curated uh, yeah, library. Yeah. And I, I mean I find it a very hopeful sign actually that there's a increased interest, there's a desire to really wrestle with some of these important questions that we're facing as a community, as a culture, as a society. You know, and I read too about the kinds of books people are buying. I read about the kinds of podcasts people are listening to and the topics of those issues. Uh, of those various different offerings. And the significance of learning on that kind of level, I think, can only bring us, hopefully, bring us a little bit further along in in this massively important conversation we're having now. And, you know, I, and I think sometimes of uh, like a, the rings of a tree or, you know, you've got like a, a, a stone facing and there's like the line where this kind of flood came through or something like that, that whatever your age, 
this is a time that we're always going to be changed by, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. I'll just say personally, like lately in, in my personal life, there's been a sense of kind of dodging bullets. There's just been a bunch of things that have come up related to COVID that felt quite large and then sort of resolved. I, so many people have this weight that they're carrying that you might not see, and that's changing us all, I think, during this period. And I think to your point, you know, it, one of the ways it's changing us is this um, maybe increased desire for, for improvement as individuals and as society to kind of almost impatience with uh, the way some things have been. Maybe not almost impatience, actually impatience, I think, in many cases. Mm-hmm. And I, it, mm-hmm. is, uh, it is positive to be a small part of that and, uh, mm-hmm. and to see those waves lift where people are really trying to, to change themselves. I will say, by the way, so I joined LinkedIn five years ago. And LinkedIn on specifically on the question of diversity and inclusion and belonging, I felt was um, really thoughtful from the moment I stepped in the door. So from before I got here. And that's one thing that's really helped us as a learning team, which is to be part of a company that I uh, that has shaped my thinking and has uh, been committed to it from the top, you know, for quite some time, which gave us uh, kind of the, the encouragement uh, and the fuel to make that a major part of our curriculum for years now. So it's been an, an maybe an unexpected advantage, but when you're at a company, and I'm sure this would be true at ArtCetra too, when you're at an organization that really breathes it or tries to breathe it, aspires to breathe it, as a, the learning component of that company, it makes it, you have all, all the more kind of enthusiasm and encouragement and energy and fuel to try and do something positive with it. You know, Dan, trying to learn about you and reading various different things and for certain in this conversation, I get a very strong sense of you as just like deeply committed to every situation. There's a learning moment or a learning opportunity and that it's almost becomes a, you know, like the air you breathe as you want to bring in that learning. You want to bring curiosity to your experience as a human being, no matter in what realm. And I was therefore not surprised to see that you wrote about the integration of learning into the workplace culture and the significance of that. And I wonder if I could invite you to talk about that a little bit as well. I'm sure it comes from that spirit of learning, as uh, Galileo said, is the greatest pleasure of, or one of the greatest pleasures of human experience. Yeah, yeah I think the, the, there has been a transformation over the last several years for L&D departments from a sense of them being kind of an isolated, almost like a, a vertical within a company, to the idea of them being, this is at the corporate level, being in, embedded, you know, and that learning is everybody's job and every manager's job. There's a valley expression of growth mindset which is about you know making yourself comfortable with stretching yourself into those places where you don't you haven't yet developed and kind of get blow, mm. getting getting into that moment of discomfort and then on to kind of growth from there and i just feel like uh there there is an increasing awareness that um individuals are on a journey and teams and companies are on a journey i think at the at the corporate level there's an increasing awareness that you need to invest in internal mobility and internal talent, and that there's a place obviously for bringing in fabulous new people, but there's also a place for helping the folks that you have kind of uh, level up. And and I just find more and more people in the industry take it as a given that spending some time on self-improvement is actually part of your kind of corporate responsibility. And as a company providing tools for that is one of the reasons, you know, that, that especially, um, some of the younger uh, folks would really even consider working somewhere. I think if you're not, you know, maybe to pull back for a second, uh, a few generations ago, people would stay at a company perhaps for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And then there came sort of a more recent time when people would stay for a year or two or three or four, and it was a little more transactional. And at some levels, I think we're moving to kind of a middle stage there where maybe people don't necessarily always stay for, you know, 30 years or 40 years or 50 years in one situation. But the time they're there, 
the individual and the organization are looking for a bit of a deeper engagement, that you should be changed uh, positively and you should change the organization positively. Um, when I came into LinkedIn, there was a graph that we showed that, that we were shown that um, talked about if you're on your career path, there's the time that you spend at LinkedIn and their, their hope was they, they that you know they knew that at some point you might move on. When you move on, you should be changed for the better, essentially which I think is paraphrasing a, a lyric from the musical Wicked, by the way, just as a side note. <laughs> I just realized that as I heard myself. Uh, I, but I, I think, and I'd be curious if you feel this too, I feel like that's getting wider common acceptance, that it is you know, increasingly the obligation of organizations to invest in their folks and, and the obligation of individuals to invest in themselves. Uh, and, and individuals and organizations are on this kind of journey and that the time we spend together should be, should be fruitful. I think that's absolutely true. But in particular, what compels me about your point of view, at least what I thought I understood was that it's a spirit, it's an openness, that it's not just self-improvement. It's a very specific way of opening your heart and your mind to a consistent, unswerving commitment to learning from everything, everyone, that a work culture becomes not just let's find out what the elders say or the most experienced say or the experts say that's important and everyone else has a way of contributing and if your attitude is that there's learning possible everywhere that infuses an organization a company a community to achieve great things no i think that's spot on you know we, we talk a lot and have for for years now about an always be learning mindset um, uh, our, the CEO of Microsoft kind of famously talked about, um, learn it alls, uh, having an advantage over know it alls. Uh, and, <laughs> right, and I think right. also to your point, the idea that it's everybody's responsibility and or everybody's opportunity. Um, I think you're, I think you're spot on, you know, it's, if you, if you have a large organization and it's just top down driven by a small number of people, um, it can only get so far, but if you can get every individual motivated, um, Obviously, it's exponentially more powerful, and and that really has been the journey for LinkedIn Learning and Linda, and and maybe to some degree for myself and the other folks here, and really for the industry has been to reduce friction points to to make learning more uh, joyous and more impactful, so that people who might have resistance for various reasons could kind of have that first positive experience, light that fire as it were, and then keep the fire lit. It reminds me actually to return to a question specifically about the LinkedIn Learning itself, and. I Call having conversations with Linda and Bruce about this a while back as well, but I'd love for you to reflect a little bit on the kind of skill-based offerings of LinkedIn and how you see that in terms of kind of broader educational goals that would be true of an institution like Art Center or Liberal Arts College or even a research university that tries to um, certainly go beyond skill-based to get to some of these issues that we're talking about now, how how we move through the world as learners, how we move through the world as people in community, how we ask questions about human experience that surround and enhance some of the skill-based learning opportunities that we might have within a college or university or within LinkedIn. And if you might explore the relationship there a little bit. So my, my son happens to be uh, a junior right now in college, you know, and the experience that he's having partially online and actually partially in person right now, um, it's so profound. It will shape him, I think, going forward. He's fortunate to be going to college and we're certainly well aware that that's a, that's a privileged situation. But I, I think for those for, for whom that experience resonates, 
and who have the opportunity, that's the sort of thing that can, you know, uh, set the stage for future learning and growth. I think there's other folks, either because they don't have the opportunity or because they um, don't have the inclination or that style of learning isn't the right one for them, for whom self-driven education and online education works. I, I really think there's such a huge need out there uh, there's even there's a third space too, which is when universities and colleges and online education work together uh, collaboratively, mm-hmm. and we've had a, a long history of partnering with and supporting. So to me, there's like such a huge um, need and appetite for ways in which people can improve themselves, add to their skill sets, transform their lives. We can't possibly serve it. You know what I mean? It's it's beyond uh, any one tool to solve it. Uh, and so I, I I I'm really excited about the part that we can contribute, right? Which I think is the opportunity to have this vast array of exceptional instructors take their time to kind of provide a thoughtful, digestible, superpower enhancing uh, instruction on so many topics that you, if you think, oh, I wanna learn about um, Tableau, I can do that. And oh, I wanna learn about strategic thinking, I can do that. And I wanna learn about you know, R or Python, I can do that. And it, it, that, that is like a space that we can operate in that really gives people so many options that they can really find the thing that they need uh, which certainly uh, colleges and universities have a vast array of options, but it's just a bit of a different uh, experience that they're delivering, a different scale that they're working at. And I just think both are super powerful and wonderful. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm very uh, thrilled for my son that he has this experience today. And I'm very thrilled for his generation that they'll have the kind of offering that we have uh, uh, for them in the future. And one of the interesting contrasts as I, as I listen to you is, at a school like Art Center, we want to kind of shape something that is both at once quite skill-based, but also leads to a certain level of discovery and freedom and opportunity that needs to be rooted in skill and discipline, but has a whole kind of freedom to it and a way of going forward. But it's also a, an education of the whole person in very fundamental kinds of ways. And we talk about that. And sometimes I think we get tripped up, and I've spoken on this podcast before, we get tripped up because there's so many things we want our students to do and know, and it comes from a very good place, that we create requirements. And requirements are necessary, but to a point. And then they can be, I think, restrictive instead of something that opens possibility. And not always the most creative way to build an education. I think we need to think much more in frames and less in requirements. But what you do is you create this library again, you create these possibilities and you create an opportunity. And I I recall Linda talking about how she is autodidactic, how she had to find out very specifically how she learns. And so there's these offerings and then the individual can perhaps create the frame or create the structure or move forward as a way toward achieving a, a more holistic sense of education. Does that resonate for you? No, it, it does. And I, and I think, um, especially when it comes to that notion of taking down some of the, the barriers and making a vast portion of society, uh, giving them the opportunity to improve themselves, there, that's just something uniquely that online can, can deliver. And, uh, yeah, and- yeah. College and university is for many, but not for for everyone for various reasons. No, absolutely. And 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 also it's 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 for often a particular moment in time in one's life, right? So when when I was later in career, I had a desire to potentially go back to school and and improve this or that skill, but it was hard for me to disrupt my life at that age, right? 
However, with mm-hmm. uh, online offerings, it gives you the ability uh, when you're 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 to work around your schedule. And that also was part of the, I think, the original genius of, of Linda Bruce was this idea that um, you were empowered to learn on your own schedule. Uh, and so if that meant at 8 p.m. you would put two hours in, then at 8 p.m. you would put two hours in, if that meant it was a little bit on the weekend, but it was your time, not somebody else's time. All those things just make make the ability to uh, challenge yourself and develop your skills and ultimately do more for people and create more. It takes down this these things that stop people from being able to get on a, a, a self-improvement journey at whatever point in their life or career. Uh, that's that's great. I mean, that opens up a very different way of looking at it for me. I think I was, uh, you know, talk about it in the spirit of learning. I think I was caught in a different sense of what the possibilities were and uh, making probably two hard and fast distinctions between the offerings of a, of a higher ed experience like your son is going through or that we try to do at Art Center versus what you're working on at LinkedIn. Thank you. It gives me a lot to think about. Where do you see all this going? Where do you see online education going in the next five to 10 years, uh, especially with the accelerated notion of what we've just experienced through the pandemic? But where are we heading? Yeah, I, we'll get there together, right? So I certainly uh, don't have that oracular power. I think the scale is changing fast. And that means that the not just the number of folks who are engaged in it, but um, people from different uh, career paths uh, and, and needs. So I think one thing that's changing is uh, it started off, I mean, Linda itself, lynda.com started off focused specifically on the creative for various reasons, and then expanded right. to uh, business and and to tech and kind of generally serving the knowledge worker. And I, I think online learning is uh, for everyone, ultimately, or certainly for, for a very wide community. So I, I think that the, the, the breadth of who we can serve is, is changing. I think also the scale of people involved um, is changing rapidly, and and that is going to create an opportunity for a kind of social learning that we wouldn't have seen before. Um, I think another challenge and opportunity is uh, organizations like ours are creating pretty vast libraries. You know, um, So we have uh, headed towards 16,000 titles total. Wow. And I was once talking to a client who had a great line, uh, which we were talking about that. And he, I think it was 14,000 then. And he essentially said, don't brag about it, uh, which was, he's right. Because the issue was the only course that matters is the course that you need in that moment or that or the or the learning path that you need or the you know the portion of the library that really resonates with the problem you're trying to solve or how you're supposed to improve yourself i think there's a lot of opportunity for using um data and ai to get much better than the industry is at yet to really help you you know kind of reach out you know that notion of you reach out and the book is there that you were looking for right um so i think like guided education and and recommendation based education is going to really help people get more quickly to the thing that they need and spend more time learning maybe on less time searching and let me pick up on that point of reaching the book that you need at the time that's another part of the creative process that people talk to me about as well because you're almost in a framework um what amy tan calls a cosmology where it's all fitting together in terms of the project you're working on. So it seems like it's serendipitous, but you do pull that. And she talks about this. You pull that book off the shelf, you open it up, and right there in that particular first page of that chapter is exactly the thing that you were looking for or needed and what comes first and how does that work. And it's fascinating, really a fascinating way to orient oneself in a creative project. You know, those... uh 
creative interviews that we were talking about, that was another thing that came up, which was this idea of giving yourself something to respond to. So people would talk, I remember one poet talked about, uh, he would pick up uh, something by um, uh, Berryman or something like that and look at a line and then kind of let his brain respond to that line. Or uh, another uh, uh, person I talked to who's a stand-up comic and a sitcom writer and a rapper would talk about going without music and then pumping music in and then unexpected music and just kind of doing all these things to trigger a response. And I, I think that's a, a, a known trick or hack that, that so many of us try, which is uh, not just looking at a blank page, but intentionally like throwing some, some noise into it so that you, your brain can kind of riff off that. So last question, we'll circle back, maybe pulling some of these threads together of this wonderful conversation. And we talk a lot about change at Art Center and influencing change is a half of our mission statement, really. And it's always fascinating to me to talk to people about how they think about the change they affect in the world. And I'd like to ask you that question about how you think about the change that you create through the work you do, through the thinking you do, through the relationships you build, through the communities you engage in, however you want to address that issue. I think um, personally, you know, if, if you think of it as, um, as a gear on a bike, you know, that goes to uh, a chain that goes uh, to wheels, right? Um, my, my piece of it personally is uh, I, I do get to work with a community of some of the nicest and smartest folks uh, that I know and have known. That was, we actually recruit for nice and smart at my team. And so my, my piece of it is mainly um, uh, trying to foster that, you know, if we talk about that idea of like lighting a spark and keeping the spark alive, like that, that's my piece, I suppose, mm -hmm. is someone else lit the spark long before me. But if I come in, I'm trying to keep that spark alive. And that's our part of it. I'm mixing metaphors wildly here. If, if that's my part of the, the, let's see, the spark lights the fire that fuels the gears or something along those lines. Um, <laughs> ultimately, what we're all doing collectively is trying to give as many people as we can the ability to, uh, in a democratized way, uh, in an accessible way, in a way that's 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 non-imposing, that's that's friendly, that's not talking down, but that's talking with, uh, that that respects how hard it is to teach and how hard it is to learn, uh, to give folks the power to uh, to drive their professional lives so that they can achieve their personal goals. And so it's, it's, it's always in the end, it comes to something, right? And it's about moving forward in your career to challenge yourself and test yourself. But it's also about, you know, providing for your family. Uh, and so I'm, I'm this one little piece of this thing that is this very large community that has been working together for many, many years to provide a, a library that we love. And the purpose of that library is to make as wide an audience as possible around the globe uh, empowered to change their lives for the better and hopefully do good with that. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. I, I've learned a lot and really enjoyed this interaction with you. I have too. And uh, yeah, very nice to get this time together. Thank you, Laura. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, 
Editor Emily Van Bergen and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and give us a star rating in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.